Would you say that the Bible is more like a novel or a collection of short stories? You may not have considered this question, but your answer is incredibly important for you to understand in determining if God is the ultimate author of the Bible and how you're going to respond to it. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran, and welcome to Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. Now, our topic for today is why the Bible is more like a novel than a collection of short stories and why it matters. Through my podcasts and blogs and writings and videos and everything else for the last number of months, I'm challenging people to look to the coming year and read through the entire Bible in chronological order. But as I was reviewing a number of past lessons, I realized that though I had talked about the structure of the Bible as being similar to a novel, I realized that a more detailed look at it would be very beneficial for you to really think through the implications of it as we prepare to read through the Bible in the coming year. In this lesson, I'm going to explain how what I call the short story view is a dominant, though incorrect, view today, and then why I believe it's valid to view the Bible as similar to a novel, and I hope that you'll find it as interesting as I did as I was studying it. Now, this is a complex lesson, but it's very important for you to understand and apply. Please go to Bible805.com for links to uh, the podcast if you want to listen again, to videos, to handouts, to transcript, discussion questions. I'm trying to put together a much more complete teaching package for you on each of the topics that we go over. But now, let's get started on our lesson. First of all, I want to talk about the dangers of what I call the short story view, short story collection view of the Bible. Instead of the Bible being one book written by God, this view assumes it's a collection of writings written by humanity. Again, I call it the short story view of the Bible. This view assumes that we do not know for certain who the authors of the books of the Bible were or precisely when they were written or collected. This is the current presupposition of many biblical scholars, popular writers, and TV programs about the Bible. Today, they might not come right out and call it that, but as you'll see, this is how they view it. Programs, for example, that search for the real Jesus or present various theories about what really happened in the Bible, all of them are basically repeating this viewpoint at their base, each of these views assume the Bible is a collection of books written by human authors. Now, where did this view of the Bible as a collection of short stories come from instead of looking at it like a novel of one complete story? Now, though this view is predominant in some scholarly circles and, most, as I said, most popular writers and television programs today, it's really fairly recent in the development of how the church has viewed the Bible. To see the historical development, I would highly recommend an excellent book on this topic, God's Word Alone, The Authority of Scripture by Matthew Barrett. It has a very detailed and scholarly history of how we have viewed the Bible throughout from literally the earliest days, but very briefly. The author relates how 
throughout the majority of biblical history and the history of the Christian Church, through the Reformation, the Bible was viewed as the inerrant Word of God, and human reason was subject to it. He then talks about the rise of human reason via the Enlightenment, and he goes through step by step all the way through to postmodern philosophy, that gradually the idea came to be to view the Bible as a collection of religious writings where human reason needed to step in and determine what was useful or true. Now, in contrast to the view held for over 2,000 years, this is, this is a really good example of it, that Moses was the author of the Torah, something came along called the Documentary Hypothesis. Now, I'm going to read you a description of it. But here's what it says. This is from Wikipedia. It's a fairly simple uh, description of a kind of wild and, well, I shouldn't really just call it wild and crazy, but let me just read it to you and you can you can see what you think about it. The documentary hypothesis is one of the models used by biblical scholars, and let me just say not all, but uh, some, and it's not used nearly as much today as it was, but it had a huge impact, which I'll get to in a minute. Before I read this description, let me just say in advance that much of this, since it came out, has been discredited, even though it had a huge impact that I'll talk about in a minute. But I want you to know that I do not believe what I'm going to be reading to you, nor do many conservative biblical scholars. But I want to give you an example of how some people view the Bible and how it has influenced the thinking of others, even if they don't know where it came from. So here goes. The documentary hypothesis is one of the models used by biblical scholars to explain the origins and composition of the Torah, or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. A version of the documentary hypothesis, frequently identified with the German scholar Julius Wellenhausen, was almost universally accepted for most of the 20th centuries, parentheses here, it's not anymore, but moving along, it posited that the Pentateuch was a compilation of four originally independent documents, the Yahwist, the J document, the Elohist, the E document, the Deuteronomist, the D document, and the Priestly, P document. The first of these, J, was dated to around 950 BCE, E was dated somewhat later in the 9th century BCE, and D was dated just before the reign of King Josiah in the 7th or 8th century. Finally, P was generally dated to the time of Ezra in the 5th century. The sources would have been joined together at various points in time by a series of editors or redactors. You will read that term redactor in a number of these the critical writings on this. It is just a word basically that they use for editor. Now, if you're looking at the video, you can see this very complex chart where they see that these different things came together. The J and the E formed the, J, formed the JE document that then uh, transitioned over to D1. And then it was, you know, all of these things, you know, different things were added and taken away and moved in and all this. And then finally, all that became the Torah. 
my conclusion and the conclusion of many uh, scholars far, far smarter and um, more knowledgeable than I am is that it doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> it really doesn't. It's a whole lot easier to believe that one person wrote it um, instead of all these things. And two, we have absolutely none, no proof or any documents whatsoever that support it in any way. No, we don't have any scholars claiming, any writers in the past claiming that they did that. We don't have any um, in-between fragments, manuscripts. We don't have, we have nothing, absolutely nothing that really realistically shows that this actually happened. But Sadly, as we know, for many theories, it doesn't seem to really matter. Even though this view was has been thoroughly discredited by reputable scholars, the results of this and similar theories, what they've done is, even if people aren't consciously aware of it, they've kind of heard rumors that, you know, we, we just can't really trust that uh, the people wrote the Bible that the Bible says that they did. Now here's kind of how it works. If you don't know for certainty, even if you've just heard vague rumors about this, on, on if you don't know for certain the authors of the books, when they were written, or when they were finally compiled into the form that you have today, and most of this is based on just totally false assumptions, the assumed conclusion is that the authors, the editors, and the compilers were all just human. And therefore, the Bible is merely a book about God, but it's not necessarily from God. You see, it's a huge difference. Now, if it then follows, according to this view, that the teachings of the Bible are useful if they speak to human need, but they can be ignored if they appear outdated or offensive. It also follows in this view that there might be spiritually useful material in the biblical books, but the books are also filled with errors in human opinion. Human reason and scholarship are then needed to make the distinctions between truth and error. The Bible becomes a book where the reader decides what's true instead of discovering what God says is true. And as it's sometimes summarized, this view believes that the Bible might contain the words of God, but overall it is not the word of God. Now without thinking, approaching the Bible in this way is how most people read it today. This view is permeated more than scholarly circles and television specials about what really happened in the Bible or who is the real Jesus. And if you think this doesn't apply to you, Think back to the last time you were in a Bible study and someone asked, what do you think this passage means? How do you feel about it? Now, I don't want to beat up on anyone because I realized in doing this study that I've done that far more in the past than I'd like to admit. Just thinking that, well, we need to decide what's really useful or not in the Bible. Oh my goodness. But now I'd like to propose what might be a new way to look at the Bible as we study it together in the coming year. We all have ways that we need to grow and, in all honesty, 
take the Bible far more seriously than we may have in the past. So let's look at it in contrast to this sort of short story view. Let's now look at it more like a novel. To do that is what I want to share now. And with that definition in mind, let's talk about number one, how God is the one author of the entire book. Number two, the unity of the plot of the entire book that follows the traditional structure of a novel. Number three, the use of progressive revelation in the entire book. And number four, the voice of the one author in the entire book. Now, first of all, let's talk about who the one author is. No great novel was written by a committee. And the Bible claims it has one ultimate author, our triune God. The summary verse for this, of course, is in 2 Timothy 3.16. And I like how the Phillips translation puts this, where it says, All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching the faith and correcting error, for resetting the direction of a man's life and training him in good living. Throughout the Bible, the terms the word of the Lord came to, God said, and similar terms confirm that though God used human authors, God himself is the ultimate author behind all the human writers. An important characteristic of God that relates to his role as author of the Bible is that God is outside of time, which is why, of course, he could write it in the way that he did. Being outside of time as the author of the Bible, God could direct an event to be written about hundreds of years before it would happen. Because knowing the entire plot of the story, God would know precisely how and when it would happen. We call God's foreknowledge of the plot prophecy. And here's an illustration that will help show how this idea relates to God as the author of the entire Bible. Now imagine a parade. You're watching, with, you're watching it with a friend, but then your friend leaves you, and a few minutes later you get a text where your friend announces that she was able to get into the announcer's booth above the crowd. You don't believe your friend was able to do that, and so you respond, prove it, because your friend can see what's coming in the parade, and you can't. She tells you that what will happen in the future of the parade, a huge float with Star Trek characters will come by. And since nothing like this has been in the parade so far, you respond, I'll believe it when I see it. A few minutes later, the float with the Star Trek characters comes by, and you realize your friend really is up in the announcer's booth. A view from above the level of the parade allowed your friend to make a prophecy about what will happen. Now, imagine that the parade is the total history of the universe and humanity. And instead of an announcer's booth, God is outside of time, seeing, knowing, the beginning from the end. And he wants us to believe that. We have a right to expect proof of just of that, just as we would from our friend at the parade, and that God gives us, he graciously gives us prophecy, both short-term and long-term in the Bible, that serves as evidence that he is the one author who sees the entire plot from beginning to end. Now, I have an illustration for you that will help. A link to it, of course, on the uh, website www.bible805.com. But let me describe it to you if you're just listening to this. Imagine a line up at the top of a page that's God's view of time, where God is outside of time 
and simultaneously he is aware and knows all that is past, present, and future because he's outside of time. So he can see into eternity past, into the glorious ages that come, and all of the different events that are in our Bible. Now, we're only in a point of time. Though we can imagine a past and a future, but when we read the Bible and we see how God, when certain authors wrote at this particular time, they prophesied something that would happen hundreds of years later, it happens, we can see that the actual author of that event was God. And I will be going into specific examples of that as we go through the Bible in the coming year. A summary of the importance of God outside of time. This is important to understand that because God is outside of time and able to see the past, present, and future simultaneously, he's thus able to give us true prophecy in the Bible. He tells us about what will happen in the future, and when it happens, this is one of the best evidences for the reality that God is the overall author of the entire Bible. We've seen God is able to plan out the entire plot if we look at his view of time like this, but then how does he structure this? The second thing we're going to talk about is the unity of the plot. Now, instead of scattered stories with different plot lines, which if you just kind of read here and there, that's what you think the Bible is, the Bible has one story, one plot line. Now, to illustrate this, let's analyze it like any novel. Now, this is this is really fun for me when I first discovered it, and, and so listen closely. I think you'll find it interesting. Um, in 1863, a gentleman named Gustav, Fre- Gustav Freitag, a German writer, advocated the plot storyline model based upon Aristotle's theory of tragedy, which divides any drama, any story, any novel into five parts. Now, these five parts are, and you've probably heard these before, the exposition, the rising action, the climax, the falling action, and the denouement. Now, next I'm going to define each of these parts in more detail using free tags definitions. And then I'm going to show you how the storyline of the Bible fits each part. First of all, the exposition. This is how Freetag uh, describes it. He says, this is the first phase. It introduces the characters, especially the main character, also known as the protagonist. It shows how the characters relate to one another, their goals and motivations, as well as their moral character. During the exposition, the protagonist learns their main goal and what is at stake. Then, how does exposition work out in the Bible? Here's how it goes. Our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the primary protagonist in the Bible. All other characters are subordinate to God, though their actions are meaningful. In the opening of Genesis, God created a world and placed humanity created in his image into a perfect garden. He met them there and walked with them. The second part is the rising action. The rising action, according to Freetag, starts with a conflict. It starts with an event that catalyzes the protagonist to take action. Rising action initiates the progression of events until the climax. In this phase, the protagonist's secondary characters understands the goal that will resolve the conflict and begins to work toward it. 
Smaller problems thwart their initial success and their progress is directed primarily against these secondary obstacles. This phase demonstrates how the protagonist overcomes these obstacles. Now, what is the rising action in the Bible? The catalyzing conflict in the biblical story is when the human couple God created for a relationship with himself turns their back on him and does the one thing he told them not to do, eat the forbidden fruit. They choose to believe the enemy of God, Satan, rather than God. The consequence is death. First temporal, physical death, and finally eternal death or separation from God. The only solution to the eternal death of his created characters is for God himself to enter the broken world and die for them. Now the rising action continues. The Old Testament is really the progression of events about God's preparation for the work of redemption. Through the lives of his chosen people and the messages of his prophets, God illustrates an explanation of how it will work out, who God is, what he expects. These are all those secondary conflicts that the whole overall framework of the novel requires. Though he can no longer walk with them, he communicates through his word, the written scriptures that become the Bible, and through events in the lives of his chosen people. Just as the rising action makes up the bulk of a novel, the rising action told in the Old Testament makes up the majority of our Bibles and much of human history. Like any careful storyteller, God's not in a hurry. He takes his time to tell the story and prepare the world for, ta-da, the climax. As Freytag says, the climax is a turning point or highest point of the story. The protagonist makes the single big decision that defines not only the outcome of the story, but also who they are as a person. The climax in the Bible, of course, is a life death and resurrection of Jesus. In that, humanity sees in Jesus the perfect man, how they were designed to live and obey God. Then that perfect man, Jesus, by an act of his free will, takes his life and offers it in the place of his creation as a sacrifice for their sin. God the Father accepts the sacrifice and the enemy Satan and death are defeated. Then comes a falling action. Falling action, as defined by free tag, it's the climax is not the ending, but it determines the ending. The falling action phase consists of events that lead to the ending. Depending upon the complexity of the story, there are often multiple secondary plot lines yet to be worked out. And so it is in the falling action of the Bible. This is what comes after the death resurrection, and ascension of Jesus back to heaven. His disciples are charged with the task of sharing the message of salvation with the world. The secondary plot lines involve the establishment of the church and how his disciples are to live out the work of reconciling the world to God made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus. The New Testament tells the story of the falling action, not only of the characters when it was first written, but it invites us to join in and become part of the story. And then comes the denouement. As Freetag says, in this phase, the protagonist and antagonist have solved their problems, and either the protagonist or the antagonist wins the conflict. The conflict officially ends. 
Some stories show what happens to the characters after the conflict ends, or they show what happens to the characters in the future. And in the Bible, the denouement in the Bible is at Christ's return to earth, the casting of Satan into the lake of fire, and the creation of the new heaven and new earth, where God once again physically, tangibly walks with his people forever. Paradise lost has become paradise regained. As C.S. Lewis says in, the, in his book, The Last Battle, the term is over, the holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning, the beginning of the real story. All their life and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. In summary, I found the way the Bible fits the structure of the novel to be really exciting when I first discovered it because I think, you know, part of it, this whole structure of the novel, how how every great book is written, how the great movies, how the great stories, somehow this is this is part of our human heart, our our human history, our makeup, and it was really exciting to see how that is how the Bible is is structured also. I trust it's a good illustration to show that the Bible is one complete organic story. It's the greatest of novels written by the one divine author. It's not just a scattered collection of short stories written by faceless writers who could have never collaborated independently to produce this one storyline over the centuries that the Bible was written. Now next I'm going to share some additional characteristics of the Bible that confirm the one author, the one unified novel structure of it. Now, this next uh, proof, if you would have it, or reason, or whatever, is progressive revelation. Aristotle said, the events of the plot must causally relate to one another as either being necessary or probable. Now, if the Bible is like a novel with one author, the scattered parts of it should relate to each other. Now, that's not necessary in a collection of short stories. A short story collection only needs to be loosely related to the topic. The individual stories can have a variety of authors with different viewpoints. We don't expect them to agree with each other, and there's no true narrative arc to the collection. However, in a novel, the key topics and plot points of the book need to relate to each other. This fitting together of topics and plot lines is what's called progressive revelation in the Bible. Now, I'm going to give you two examples of plot lines in the Bible that illustrate this. You can see this, of course, when you read the entire Bible, again, preferably in chronological order. But you can also see this. Another way to do it is when you do topical studies using a tool like the Chain Reference Bible, which takes you through the Bible topic by topic. And I hope to do some future videos and podcasts just on this resource because it is a great way to see how individual topics carry through and build on each other in the Bible. But let me give you a specific example of progressive revelation. One continuing plot line in the Bible is that a sinless sacrifice was needed to pay for humanity's rebellion against their creator. Now, we don't know why this is. 
Why a sacrifice? But it is simply a law of creation. In the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis describes the necessary death of Aslan, the Christ figure, as one of the deep laws before time began. In the same way, why a sinless sacrifice was required to pay for sin is something the Bible does not tell us. It's simply an underlying law of divine reality and one that carries through the Bible. We see it early in Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned. God covered them with animal skins, obviously from the sacrifice of a sinless animal. When Abel made his offering that was pleasing to God, it was an animal sacrifice. Job offered animal sacrifices. So did Abraham. All of these prior to the Levitical laws. Later, the sacrifices, their type, purpose, and procedure were clarified in the Levitical laws after the Exodus and became tied to the idea of a coming Messiah in Isaiah and other prophetic writings until... Jesus was the final sacrifice. This plot line moved along through the entire Old Testament, and that is why it was so extraordinarily meaningful when John the Baptist saw Jesus and he announced, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Finally, all the previous teaching about sacrifices were fulfilled with Jesus' death on the cross. The later New Testament writers expand on and clarify the meaning of his death until, in the final book of Revelation, John has a vision of Jesus, both as lion and lamb. The plot line of a needed sacrifice for sin of an innocent winds through the entire Bible, through the centuries and the voices of many, but its truth is progressively revealed by the one author, God, behind it all. Now, Jesus' commentary on progressive revelation in his life and ministry is really interesting, where he said, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. He's saying, you know, all of it talks about me. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus begins its discussion, but other New Testament authors refer to and confirm the progressive revelation of Old Testament teachings, how they were further then revealed and confirmed and talked about in the New Testament. The Old Testament is quoted over 200 times in the New Testament, with writer after writer first quoting an Old Testament passage and then showing how it was fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Sometimes I challenge you to read the book of Matthew. It's a great example. Throughout the entire book, he'll mention something that Jesus did, and then he'll say, this was to fulfill, and he quotes an Old Testament passage. I read through it one year, just marking each of those times, and it was it was really an interesting study, and I would encourage you to do that. I'll talk about it also. So, and encourage you in that when we get to Matthew as we read through the Bible. Now, the fourth thing that I have is that we hear the voice of one author in the entire book. I know this final point is subjective, but I think it's valid. Jesus said that his sheep recognize his voice, and we read, when we read the canonical books of the Bible, the ones that are in our, our Bibles, we hear one voice. But when we read the books of the Apocrypha or the Gnostic Gospels, to me, 
it's obviously a very different voice. The Gnostic Gospel of Thomas is very, very different than the four Bibles, than the four Gospels in our Bibles. Again, you need to read it to hear it. Now, I'm going to give you two brief readings from um, both. First, first of all, I'm going to read you something from the Bible, and then I'll read you something from the Gnostic Gospels. Both of these are a, a theoretically when Jesus spoke his last words to his disciples. Now in John 14 it says, this is in our um, accepted canonical Bible where it says, do not let your hearts be troubled, trust in God, trust also in me. In my father's house are many rooms, if it were not so I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me so that you may, may be with me where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, he, it goes on. Let me just jump to verse 27 where it says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Now in contrast, I want you to listen to some of the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas, which theoretically um, happened, you know, Jesus said at the same time to the disciples. And this is how it starts. It says, These are the secret sayings that the living Jesus spoke, and Didymus Judas Thomas recorded. And he said, Whoever discovers the interpretation of these sayings will not taste death. Jesus said, Those who seek should not stop seeking until they find. When they find, they will be disturbed. When they are disturbed, they will marvel and will reign over all. And after they have reigned, they will rest. Jesus said, If your leaders say to you, Look, the Father's kingdom is in the sky, then the birds of the sky will precede you. If they say to you, it's in the sea, then the fish will precede you. Rather, the Father's kingdom is within you, and it is outside you. When you know yourselves, you will be known, and you will understand that you are children of the living Father. But if you do not know yourselves, then you will live in poverty, and you are in po- and you are the poverty. Jesus said, lucky is the lion that the human will eat, so that the lion becomes human, and fall is the human that the lion will eat, and the lion will still become human. I don't think those two passages were spoken by the same person. And I think that you literally come to hear, if you read, when you read through the entire Bible, you will hear one voice throughout. Now to review and summarize, the Bible is not a collection of isolated stories with anonymous authors written who knows when, but the greatest novel, the greatest story ever written by God to show his creation, his ways, what went wrong in our world and what Jesus did and will do to set things right. Now, some suggested applications for us. Obviously, please join me in the coming year to read the Bible, the whole Bible, in chronological historical order. Now, there's lots of, when you do this, uh, this is something I just came up with. Um, There's lots of excellent study Bibles out there. I mean, I'm sitting right here in my office and I'm looking at the Learning Bible and the Chronological Bible and the Archaeological Bible and the Apologetic Study Bible. And I mean, you name it, I've got it. 
but I was trying to decide which one I wanted to use in the coming year, and I just got overwhelmed looking at all of these, and I thought, oh, you know, my brain just gets tired. You know, all of these notes. Now, I like to study a lot of different things, but when I'm just reading the Bible, I would encourage you, if you can, just don't use any of those study Bibles. Just get the plain text of the Bible. And I have here on the video, I got this. Uh, what I got is I ordered from Amazon. I got a plain text Bible. Um, it's very inexpensive. It was around $8 and it's an extra large print. I'm using the English Standard Version this year. Each year I try to read it in a different version. Last year I read it in the Message. The year before in the NIV. People will say, well, what's the best translation? I just love it. I think it was Rick Warren and others have said this, that the best translation for you to either read or listen to the Bible in is the one you read. <laughs> um, they're, all of them are so good. Um, and it's just what, you know, which one do you want to read? Listen or read whatever translation, that's your choice. But as the famous Nike ad says, just do it. Pick one and just jump right in. And one last thought as we look at the Bible as a novel. All novels, remember, come to an end. And so does the story of salvation in the Bible. And so too will our world. And though the ending of the Bible does promise a potential happily ever after, each person must make the decision to trust that the message of the Bible is true and that Jesus is the only way to salvation for that to be true for them. God did not write the Bible to entertain us, but to save us. Or, as J.I. Packer put it, and I love this quote of his, The scriptures are a lifeline God throws us in order to ensure he and we stay connected while the rescue is in process. My prayer is that you will daily grab a hold of the Bible as if your life depended on it. Because it does. For your life today and your destiny now and forever. That's all for now. Please check out the notes from this lesson, links to the video, and how to support the Bible 805 ministry and other resources at www.bible805.com. In closing, I'm Yvonne Prynne, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to end with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.